0: Reading tonight is from 1 Samuel 17, 12 through 30. Now, David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, "'Take for your brothers an epah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers.' Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Paul, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, and left the sheep with a keeper, and took the provisions and went, and Jesse had, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, behold, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, "'Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel.' And David said to the men who stood by him, "'What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God?' And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? What is not but a, what is not, was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. This is the word of the Lord. Be to
1: God. One of my favorite stories in the book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath is about the man who discovered the cure to a childhood form of leukemia. His name is Dr. Emil Freirich. And when he showed up at the National Institute for Cancer in 1955, a diagnosis of leukemia was a death sentence for a child. At the most, remission uh, would be perhaps eight weeks. No one left the hospital. There were a couple of drugs uh, available during that time, but none of them really worked. And... uh, The idea at the the moment was that there simply was nothing that could be done for these poor ones that were suffering so greatly. But Dr. Freyrich had an idea. He looked at the problem. He looked at what everyone else had concluded there was no possibility of overcoming. And he thought, you know, I still think we can cure this cancer. And he decided to combine three different drugs uh, and treat the children. Other doctors were horrified. They thought he would kill his patients. He was ordered to stop. Funds were withdrawn. He persisted and eventually came up with a a method of combining drugs and chemotherapy that is now the the norm. And today, children that were once doomed to die leave the hospital. He was able to look at an overwhelming challenge and see in it uh, a wonderful opportunity. Well, in this story, David also faces an overwhelming challenge, and as we saw two weeks ago, the Israelites are facing off against the Philistines at the Battle of Elah Valley. They're a superior army, better trained, an infantryman named Goliath, a giant warrior, has challenged Israel to representative warfare, this uh, odd practice where uh, one army would send another representative on behalf of themselves to fight another representative from the other army and the winner would take all. God seemed uh, distant. We haven't heard his voice yet in the first 12 uh, verses of the story. Everything looks like Israel is about to be overcome and pushed back into slavery. And the last verses of the introduction are When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were overwhelmed in the face of a giant obstacle. And what we're going to look at for the next two weeks is how David takes an overwhelming obstacle and finds an opportunity in the midst of it, an opportunity to glorify God, an opportunity to advance the kingdom, an opportunity to use his gifts for the sake of others. So before we go any farther tonight, let me just get you thinking and ask you a question. Is there an overwhelming obstacle in your life tonight? Is there a, a problem that you just you don't know how to solve? Or, or maybe a need that you have in your life you just can't meet it? Um, Maybe there's a chaotic part of your life tonight and you have no idea how to smooth it over. Or maybe there's a a relational knot that you're a part of and you just have no idea how to unravel that knot. Is there an overwhelming obstacle in your life that, at least in that part of your life, makes you feel discouraged and hopeless? Well, the first thing the narrator wants us to understand is not that David is a great, competent hero who, through his own wit and and strength, solves the problem. That's Hollywood. That's not the Bible. This is not a James Bond story. This is not a Superman story. As a matter of fact, the first thing that our narrator wants us to understand is that David has no resources to solve the problem. He's from a little village called Bethlehem, very insignificant. His father is old. That means he no longer has power in the village. He is the eighth child, so he's the least powerful son of an unpowerful family in a not very powerful village. So that's kind of how the narrator is setting the story. David does not have the resources to overcome his problem. And that is what makes great challenges so frightening. Is we look at them and we look at what we can offer and we just don't see how we could ever get through this. It's also why God brings these challenges into our lives, and he does bring them into our lives. He brings overwhelming obstacles into our lives to teach us to trust him, to teach us that it's only in our weakness that he is strong. Like Zechariah, we read in the book of Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The only way we can learn that is if God allows us to get into a position where we don't have the resources to solve a problem. Paul talks about this a lot. He writes the Corinthians, and he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message weren't plausible words of wisdom. They were in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He says, I didn't have great rhetorical capabilities when I came to you. I was weak. And that's why you tasted God's power when I came. And then years later, he writes them back, and he's had this uh, this illness. We don't know what it was, but he suffered with it greatly, and it apparently never went away. And this is what he says he learned, that God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. (laughs) That's, why God lets overwhelming challenges come into our life to teach us that only when I am weak am I strong. So if you're discouraged tonight as you think about your overwhelming obstacle and frustrated and maybe battling a little bit of hopelessness and you just for the life of you can't figure out how you're going to get through it and maybe you're just fed up with the whole thing, you're exhausted, you're at the end of your rope, you're angry and you don't know what you can do to overcome this problem, okay, now you're ready. You're ready now. God's got you where he wants you. Then we read, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. The number 40 in the Bible symbolizes testing. Uh, Moses and the people of God are in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. Uh, The rain falls on Noah for 40 days. Uh, uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, waits for the revelation of the law for 40 days. It's amazing how often the word 40 is used in the Bible. And it always has to do with a period of testing in which God is preparing his people for what's next for them. And it's not like the tests that we take at school that determine whether or not we go on or flunk out. It's more of training for godly character. Job says, I know when God tests me, I'll come forth as gold. So again, one of the things that you need to think about when you're facing an overwhelming obstacle is why it's in your life. And the reason why it's in your life is to train you to be gold. It's there for a reason. It's not an accident. It's there to teach you. Well, David's father gives him a simple assignment while all this is going on. And, and, you know, the Bible has a lot of little details in it that are kind of fun. He's supposed to run some bread and cheese down to the camp. Now, you remember... In the chapter before, this man has just been anointed by the greatest spiritual leader in all of Israel as the future king of Israel. The next thing we see him doing is carrying cheese and bread to his brothers. And I could see this going a whole different way. I could see him saying, Dad, you were here when Samuel came by, right? Did you miss the whole anointing thing? I am the future king of Israel. I am not going to carry cheese to the front line. I knew a man once who um, was convinced he was born for greatness. He was convinced that he was to be a great screenwriter. And he so he lived in his parents' basement. Um, it often goes with being a great screenwriter, I'm, I'm told. And he, and he would work on his manuscript. and And I would ask him, I knew him for a few years, and and I'd say, "If you thought about you know working and, and, and he said, no, "No, no, it gets in the way of my art." and then I'd say well would you would you at least consider using your gifts around the church?" and no, no, I've got to focus on my on my screenwriting and i I knew him for about ten years, and he never got out of the basement, and he never finished his play and I don't know what happened to him. sometimes we think we're destined for great things or God's going to do something huge through our life, and so we won't carry the cheese. But carrying the cheese is a big part of greatness. Paying the mortgage is a big part of greatness. Mowing the yard is a horrible curse. But a, moral, is a uh, <laughs> But there are basic things that we have to do even when we're the king of Israel. And what's so ironic about it is David finds his destiny carrying the cheese. If David would have, you know, just said, Get out of here, Jesse, I'm, you know, I'm studying my, my King training book, he'd have missed the whole thing. So don't be discouraged right now when you're changing diapers or working at a job that you don't like or studying under a teacher who doesn't see your, your brilliance and your incredible potential. Carrying the cheese can be one of the godliest things you ever do. And it can help you overcome incredible obstacle. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Then, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, Now now this, if you try to imagine this story, this is a puzzling part of it, right? It says he goes to the encampment, and it's a rare Hebrew word that means wagons or circle or circled wagons. And what most scholars think is that Israel had gotten into a defensive posture here and circled their wagons to protect themselves, and so that was what the camp was like. So David finds the Israeli soldiers in a defensive posture... And then it says that the the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. Now, this was common in warfare then, and I suppose it still is today, uh, to stimulate the troops, to terrify the enemy. You'd send someone out in a war cry. Everybody would scream, hoop and holler, and rush the line. But you've been following along with the story. What happens after the war cry? Nothing. (laughs) They stop. And the way it's laid out, there's these two hillsides And nobody wants to go into the valley because you're in your plunder. And so they would hear the war cry. They would rush. They would all get to the top of the valley. And then they would stop. And Goliath would walk out of the middle and start hurling epithets. This goes on for 40 days. And I think that's what happens sometimes when you encounter an overwhelming obstacle you might you know, listen to motivational speaking or something like that, and you have somebody yell a war cry in your ear or whatever it is, but then you get stuck, paralyzed, and you don't even know how to do what you're trained to do, and you circle the wagons and shut it down. I had a football coach tell me once that the most dangerous time for injury in a game is when a player plays not to be injured. You know, it's, it's late in the game, late in the season. Maybe they're hurting and they want to come back next year. And so they go into the game and they think, I just want to get through this thing without getting hurt. He said, that's when you get hurt. When you stop attacking, when you stop doing what you're called to do, when you're playing, when you're circling the wagons, that's when the injuries happen So, question for you, friends. Are you playing not to get hurt? Have you circled the wagons? Has the size of the obstacle paralyzed you? Is your life stuck? David looks around at all this. He asks two questions. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? And the soldiers tell him that he'll get his daughter's hand and great wealth and all those things. And I don't know, if, you've, if you read that, you may not want your hero to say that. I mean, that's kind of not real hero-like, right? It's not real saint-like. First thing he asks is, so what do I get if I do this? <laughs> We don't want him to do that. One of the things I love about the Bible is it puts it all in there. But what do you have? You have a young man who wants to go into the world and make his mark. That's not all bad. That's part of what we do. And when you submit that to God's glory and honor, it can be a good thing. And that leads to the next question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies? of the living God. That is the first line David speaks in the whole story so far, and it's the first time anybody has bothered to talk about the living God. And now is when the obstacle starts to turn into an opportunity. When David, with his simple, sturdy faith, shifts the whole framework of the story to the character and power of the living God, when he takes his eyes off of the problem and he looks to the God that he serves, he starts to see an opportunity instead of an obstacle. And that's something to think about as you face your own obstacle. Sometime we can get so fixated on the nature of the problem how big the giant is, that we take our eyes off of the living God. And if you're stuck in a place tonight, facing an overwhelming obstacle, and you're just having a hard time to see the opportunity that God has given you in this obstacle, take some time this week to step back and look up at the living God. I find myself when I'm in conversations lately doing something I didn't used to do, and maybe it's not a good thing, I find myself cutting people off more. That's probably not a great pastoral technique. But, 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 I mean, not so I can check my phone, but I mean, so I'm trying to help them. And, and as people talk to me, a lot of times what I find is when someone comes in and gives me the gift of sharing a need or a situation, what they want to do is rehearse how big Goliath is. And we get stuck in obsessing over how big the problem is and how hopeless it is. And sometimes you got to pull the plug on that, reframe it, and say, okay, can we just look up at the living God for a minute? And that's when opportunities start to look like, or rather, obstacles start to look like opportunities. So think about your life for a minute. Here's a question that I'd like you to think about this week. What opportunity has God given me that most people around me see as an overwhelming obstacle? What opportunity has God given me that most people around me see as an overwhelming obstacle. It took me some time to think about it. I eventually came up with like four. So think about that this week. And next week, we'll, we'll start to look at how David turns this obstacle into an opportunity. Now, the last thing I want to see, and then we'll, we've gone far enough in our story this, it's not easy to do this. In some ways, it's easier to be stuck and paralyzed and to live in fear, frozen in fear. That sounds counterintuitive. Don't? I mean, nobody wants to live that way, but it's kind of nice. <laughs> it's kind of safe there. We can kind of camp there. Uh, you can get by. You don't get arrested. You can live that way. But some part of you dies when you live that way. It's not the way we want to live. So as you start to identify your problem and you start to turn toward it and you start to ask the living God to show you how this could actually be an opportunity, everyone is going to rally and support you, I promise. (laughs) And not in the world I live in. Uh, matter of fact, some of the people that you thought would support you will turn against you. And that's, I don't know about you, I, I can take, I, I can, it's okay when, when someone's challenging me that I feel very remote from. It's, it's, it's when people are very close and you don't feel supported. That's when it hurts. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? You can tell they've kind of had a long history of this. Um, Matthew Henry, that wonderful commentator from the 17th century, made this observation. He said, in times of general formality and lukewarmness, Every degree of zeal, which implies readiness to go further or to venture more in the cause of God than others might, will be blamed as pride and ambition. Those who undertake great and public services must not think it strange if they are spoken ill of and opposed by those from whom they expect support and assistance. Yet they must humbly go on with their work in the face not only of enemies' threats, but of friends' slights and suspicions. Well, let's end tonight, but I'm going to ask you to think about a prayer this week as you could kind of start turning an obstacle into an opportunity. Sit down this week, take out a piece of paper. And prayerfully identify what your Goliath is. We we did that two weeks ago. What what is your overwhelming obstacle? Start there. Acknowledge that you lack the resources to overcome it. And then you could pray a prayer like this. Father, by faith, I believe you've given me this problem as an opportunity. Name the problem. As a test. As a way to deepen my faith and give you glory, I don't see the way through, but I see you. You are the living God. Show me how to see this situation as an opportunity and not an obstacle. Let's pray.